You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual So it was Pride this weekend in Seattle and in New York and in a lot, if not most other places. Some places have their Pride parades and celebrations earlier in June than others. But the big one, big Pride parades, the big commemoration is this weekend, roughly the weekend of the 25th, 26th, around there every year. Last year, something we have to celebrate this year, Obergefell, the ruling legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states, came down right before Pride. We're celebrating the one-year anniversary of that. And this weekend we got to celebrate Thanks to Barack Obama and the White House and his administration, the designation of the first National Park Service unit dedicated to telling the story of LGBT Americans. Barack Obama, his administration, designated the Stonewall Inn, site of the Stonewall Riots in 1969, that kicked the already out there, already happening movement for rights for homosexuals into high gear, really kicked off the modern LGBT civil rights movement designated the Stonewall Inn, site of those riots, as a national landmark. It will be preserved. There will be exhibitions. It will be forever protected. The new Stonewall National Monument, I'm reading from the White House press release, will permanently protect Christopher Park, a historic community park at the intersection of Christopher Street, West 4th Street, and Grove Street, directly across the street from the Stonewall Inn. And the monument's boundaries encompasses approximately 7.7 acres of land, including the Stonewall Inn, Christopher Park, the surrounding streets and sidewalks that were the site of the 1969 Stonewall uprisings. So we had that to celebrate this weekend as well. A couple of things I want to address about Pride. You know, a large group of queer people can't get together anywhere and do anything without some queer people finding fault with that thing that some of those queer people are doing. One of the complaints you tend to hear in the wake of the Pride Parade is minor, but I'd like to quickly address it. You have people complaining about the mess because we're not really showing our pride. Here's a picture of what the streets look like immediately after pride. Look at all the litter and glitter and abandoned rainbow feather boas and beads and unwrapped condoms that were thrown to the crowd and left on the ground. And to those hand ringers out there who are always offended by the mess pride leaves behind or worried about how that mess makes us look as a community. You know, wherever large groups of people gather the amount of garbage that large group produces generally exceeds the space dedicated to the safe and responsible collection of waste. That's why cities generally, and often with fees and revenues generated from pride parades themselves, send out cleanup crews in the wake of the pride parade to clean up the extra mess. So calm the fuck down about the mess. Think of the mess that you're going to see all those flyers, condom packets, abandoned, lost rainbow feather boas, not as mess and the people who left them behind, not as slobs, but as job creators. The other thing I wanted to address quickly before we get to this week's calls was a meme that was going around. People, of course, in the wake of Orlando and the, the massacre at the Pulse nightclub were just gutted and energized and moved. And it was a very serious moment. And this meme, I think, kind of rose out of that kind of angst and feeling. But anyway... It's two pictures, one on top of each other. The top picture is of some people marching, carrying a banner that says fight back, smash gay oppression. Somebody carrying a parents and friends of lesbians and gay banner. Everyone in skirts and suits and ties. It's a really old picture. It looks like it's about 40 years old, probably from the beginning of the modern LGBT civil rights movement. 
And that picture is labeled, this is gay pride. And under it, there is a picture of a shirtless guy bent over at the waist on top of what looks like a slutty float in a pride parade for a gay bar with another guy wearing what looks like a pride flag kind of as an apron humping the guy bent over at the waist and that picture is labeled this is bullshit spot the difference so gay pride is marching in a suit and tie very seriously serious faces on under a banner to smash gay oppression and bullshit is hot boys humping each other in the pride parade and i just want to make the point for the millionth time, that these are not mutually exclusive endeavors. That you can be the righteous person at the barricades on Saturday with your fist in the air and the half-dressed dude on a float in a gay pride parade on Sunday with your ass in the air. We shouldn't be, queer people shouldn't be pushing these false narratives that are really the hobby and domain and beloved anti-gay tropes of the straight people who don't like us very much because they will talk about how guys in drag and sometimes you even hear gay people say, oh, guys in drag, they ruin it for everybody. You should respectability politics. Make sure there are guys in suits walking down the street or guys in suits better represent the gay community. No, 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 no. The guy in the suit Monday through Friday who's gay might just be the guy in drag on Saturday night or on Sunday at the Pride Parade. Same thing with leather or the guys in Speedos or whatever, or the dykes on bikes with their tits out in the sunshine, that one of the things that we are pushing for and celebrating and demonstrating and modeling for them at the Pride Parade is sexual freedom, sexual release, sexual liberation, and a certain amount of Public manifestation of that sexuality and that sexual freedom is appropriate and called for. And it is also political to have fun at the Pride Parade. Remember, one of the chief lies our political enemies tell about us is that we are miserable. That to be lesbian, gay, bi, or trans is to be lonely and unhappy and unloved and not connected to anything. And this lie is harder to tell in a world where so many LGBT people are out and obviously happy and content and loved and partnered and even married. Thanks, Obergefell. But it is a lie that is still told. And it is a lie that a lot of particularly young LGBT people, but not always only young LGBT people, believe until they see with their own eyes the evidence that that is not true. And one of the places where people often first really see in an overwhelming, transformative way that there is joy in queer life and that this is indeed a lie is at a pride parade. And so the guys in suits and the guys who are political and the guys and the women and the gender queers and the non binaries and the everybody's at the pride parade who are capable of being political, capable also of having fun, a lot of crossover there. They're all part of the pride parade. Now, some people are only political, only marchers. God bless them. Some people are only having fun. God bless them. They both play their roles. They both advance the cause for LGBT civil equality, some by demanding change and some by occupying space, some by simply being visible and being joyful. And we don't have to pit those two groups of people against each other. That's bullshit. All right, coming up on today's show, 
tons of your questions. And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, we have author Moira Weigel here to talk with us about her new book, Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. She also sticks around to give some dating advice to callers. Coming right up. Hi, Dan. I am a gay man living in a big city on the West Coast, and I'm in a predicament. I don't know what to do. I'm engaged. I live with my boyfriend, partner, or whatever you want to call him. Um, we've been, been together for about two years. We plan on getting married next year. And my mom keeps on finding ways to get between us. My mother and I are very close, um, but she keeps on finding ways to try to sabotage our relationship. Um, and after the Orlando massacre, which about hit us very closely as, as gay people, um, you know, everyone was hurt, but we took it very closely since we spent our lives working at gay bars, and it just hit us in a very different way. And so. My partner keeps on posting things on his social media about his political stance, and he's very uh, a, a lot more liberal than she is. She's become even more conservative, um, which normally wouldn't necessarily bother me. Um, I, I kind of don't check on her Facebook. I don't really look at his. But um, she keeps on going on to his and just covering it with ridiculous demagoguery about, like, all sorts of crazy conservative stuff um, that is that I just don't agree with and I can't really defend. And I asked her just knock on his page and, and let bygones be bygones, have your own opinion, we'll have ours, and it's fine. But then yesterday I, I found she had this picture of uh, basically a woman trying to kill a guy breaking into the bathroom. And I, I just lost everything. I was just so upset. And I sent her this whole email about how, you know, I, I can't keep defending her and, and I can't keep on letting her opinions and, and, and conservative point of view get, get in between me and, and my future husband. Like, at this point, she doesn't even want a wedding anymore. I would never allow someone else to, to do any of this to my, me or my boyfriend. I would stop talking to her a long time ago if she wasn't my mother. I'm her only friend, her only relative that still talks to her. I don't know what to do. You're the only one of her relatives that still speaks to her. That is the most telling and pertinent detail. And you dropped it right there at the end. Your mommy has a problem. Serious problems. Perhaps mental health problems. And you should be sensitive to that. But there's no excuse for not blocking your mother on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and wherever else she's lurking and reaching out and attempting to harass your future husband. She's really trying to drive a wedge between you and your fiance. That's what we call them. You say, I don't know what to call them. We're engaged. Boyfriend, partner, what do I call them? You call them your fiance. That's what you call them when you're engaged to. She's trying to drive a wedge between you so she can continue to have you and you only all to herself because you're all she's got. And that ain't your fault. That's her fault. So time to let mom know, time to lower the boom, time to communicate to her clearly that if this keeps up, she's not going to separate you from your husband. She's going to separate herself from you because if she forces you to pick between her and her abusive, spammy, conservative horseshit and the man you love and intend to marry, you're going to pick him over her and then she will have no one. 
and her family that's willing to talk to her or put up with her bullshit. And in the meantime, and in the short run, block her. Perhaps you don't have to block her, but you should give your boyfriend, sorry, give your fiance, your permission, your encouragement, importune him to block your mom on Facebook. They don't have to friend each other or follow each other. Block her, mute her. And if she has an issue with that, if she has a problem with that, you say, well, tough, tough shit. And you don't engage. You don't even have to discuss it. Tough shit. Sorry. Didn't like the stuff you were putting on his page. Didn't want to see it anymore. You're out. You're gone. Period. The end. As for the wedding, I understand where your boyfriend is coming from. If I were in his shoes and my fiance's parent was constantly harassing and attacking me on my Facebook page, I wouldn't be looking forward to mother of the briding around with her at my wedding. Tell your boyfriend that you can have a nice long engagement and you can wait for her to drop fucking dead before you actually schedule the wedding. Or you can make sure when the wedding comes, her involvement, promise your boyfriend, her involvement is and will be minimal and that there will be people at the wedding to run interference and keep her the fuck away from him. He doesn't have to like your mother or interact with your mother at all to be married to you. Make that clear to him. Hi, Dan. I am a straight 28-year-old female from Colorado. Um, The reason for my call is because I work with a man that makes me very uncomfortable. I have worked for this company for going on 12 years. It is a construction company, so of course I'm surrounded by men. Uh, One in particular is very forward in his advances. Um, he, he makes it clear that he likes me and wants to do everything he can to get me to go on a date with him. In the past, uh, the first time that it started happening, I will say I was 18 um, and he cornered me in a bathroom and tried to kiss me and I smacked him and <laughs> told him that his advances were not welcome um, because leading up to that, he had made me very uncomfortable um, and that was the final straw. After that, he continues to force himself on me, um, and by that I mean whenever I go to visit the job site, he will ask everyone else to leave and make sure that it's only him and I in the room, and he's phrasing it so that he's, quote-unquote, asking me a question, but then gets very close to me and whispers in my ear and tries to smell my hair and touches my hand, and I, I tell him that I am not interested, I don't want to date him. I don't have any desire to be with him. I tell him that I've got a husband. I'm not interested. And I don't, aside from putting him on glass with the boss and probably getting him fired, I'm not really sure how else to make it clear that I do not want him to treat me this way. But how do I make him stop? You make him stop by getting him fired. This has been going on for 10 years. You say he first cornered you in a bathroom when you were 18 years old and you are now 28 and still with the same company with this monster who's been sexually harassing you for 18 years in front of witnesses. The people he's sending out of the room must know that there's a reason he's sending them out of the room so he can be alone with you. Document everything if you haven't already documented it and go to your boss. Go to whoever is above this guy and let them know that you have been sexually harassed by this person for 10 years and it ends now either with his termination or with the big fat fucking lawsuit you're going to hit him with. 
so that you can retire at 29. It's not on you to come up with some magic incantation, some words strung together that make him stop doing what he's doing. It's on your boss, legally on your boss, to make sure that you have a safe workplace. And you do not have a safe workplace. You are being subjected to sexual harassment, to a kind of gender discrimination, a kind of gender terrorism at the hands of this employee. And it's been going on for a decade. No, it's not on you. You don't have to fix this. This company that you both work for, that company has to fix it. Not on you, on them and on him. Hi, Dan. Uh, long-time listener, thank you so much for everything you do. Uh, I really appreciate you. I, I have a potentially embarrassing question, given that I've been listening to you for so long. But what is mutual masturbation? Like, you just, so you just sit on the couch next to each other and, and jerk it? Like, how is that different from you both just, like, being on your phones? I don't, what do you, what do you do? How is, how is that interactive? Can you, I'm sorry, can you explain that, please? You sound really angry about this concept, this mutual masturbation idea. And I'm wondering if you're projecting onto the concept of mutual masturbation some other anxiety or anger shit that would be more properly applied somewhere else. I don't understand what about mutual masturbation is making you so upset. And I don't understand if you can get to your phone and push the buttons to call me and I welcome your calls and thank you very much for calling that you couldn't get to your computer and push the buttons to enter mutual masturbation into the Google where you would quickly get this definition, two people, either of the opposite sex or same sex, touching each other's penis slash vagina for pleasure and or orgasm. Mutual masturbation means masturbating together. You don't take a piece of duct tape and put it through the middle of the couch and sit on either side and never touch each other. Mutual masturbation kind of means rolling around, jacking myself, jacking you, or fingering you, fingering me, and us stimulating and pleasuring each other and getting off, masturbating in a pile together. And it doesn't have to be just two people. Three or more people can engage in a satisfying act of mutual masturbation. And it can be great. It can be really great, especially when no one in the room is up for being penetrated or not wanting to do the work of giving a blowjob. It's called a blowjob, of course, not a blow vacation because it requires a little effort. And if people just want to have sort of a low-grade, low-risk, low-expenditure of energy and resources intimate encounter where everybody gets off and you have all that skin-to-skin contact and tactile pleasure and you have that intimacy and you get all the natural bliss hormones that go flooding through your brain at the moment of climax, you can mutually masturbate. You can masturbate together. And that's what makes it not just masturbation, not just jerking it, because you're doing it together. But it is opt-in. You don't have to mutually masturbate with anyone. It's not required of you. If just the thought of mutual masturbation fills you with such incredulity and rage, masturbate alone. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-something living in the Bay Area, and my sister recently moved to a place nearby, and she is doing, um, she's doing a year with AmeriCorps and getting paid nothing and she wants to make some extra money. And she's decided that to do this, she wants to go on dates for money or become a sugar baby. She doesn't seem to consider this sex work or she thinks she can do this without being expected to have sex. And 
she doesn't seem to really understand what she's getting herself into. Um, she even started making a profile on seeking arrangements and was going to use her own real photos before my roommate and I talked her out of it. And I'm just really concerned for her safety and I don't know if I can talk her out of it, but how to help her stay safe or help her understand what she's getting herself into. It just, it seems like kind of an extreme option to me. Sugar baby, sugar daddy arrangements typically involve money for sex. The rubber hits the road at a certain point or the rubber catches the load at a certain point. And the guys that your sister will meet through a seeking arrangements kind of website or a sugar baby, sugar daddy kind of website are going to go in with a, the expectation that if they give her money, if they take her to dinner, if they take her shopping, that they're going to get laid. And what your sister should worry about is that guys can be terribly, terribly shitty. And guys who are laying out money can feel terribly, terribly entitled. And if they go in with one set of expectations and not an unreasonable set of expectations around what they're buying with their money, which is not just FaceTime, they may lash out. It could go so far as physical intimidation, physical violence, coercion into performing sex acts, even rape. Short of those nightmares, it could just be that a guy gets angry and has your sister's photos and her contact information and the link to her page. And one may, in anger, decide to out your sister to potential employers or her current employer or to her family. So I would discourage your sister from dabbling in this world so long as she's deluding herself about the expectations these other guys have. If she must, she needs to make it abundantly clear that this is a time-only arrangement and not a nudge-nudge-wink-wink-you're-just-buying-my-time arrangement, but just time, no sex, no nudity, no nothing, just you spending money on me for the pleasures of my company, not the pleasures of my body. If she makes that clear, especially if you can get her to make that clear on her profile, you don't have to worry about her too much because she's probably not going to get any dates. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about a subject I know you really don't want to talk about, but I feel like I've got to say something. About this shooting, I, I ache for the people involved. I really do. I mean, this is my community, and I'm used to looking over my shoulder, but this just takes things to a whole new level. It just drives me crazy because... Just please don't come after my right to protect myself against this exact same kind of violence. When I was growing up, I read about Matthew Shepard, and I decided I was never going to let that be me, ever. And that's why I carry a gun. That's why I own guns. It's because I don't want that to happen to me. I want to protect myself. And just disgust me that the response to this is going to make me less safe. It's going to make everybody less safe. And I want to see people in our community able to be safe and make their spaces safe. Because calling it a safe space doesn't do anything unless there's somebody there to enforce that. You know, and I enforce that wherever I go. Wherever space I'm in is as safe as I can make it for me. And I want to see people in our community, LGBT people, especially trans people who are the victims of so much violence. And I worry for my trans friends so much. I want to see the members of that community that feel that they're mentally capable of that responsibility to be able to defend themselves effectively against multiple attackers. I'm just calling to tell you, you are so wrong. Okay, well, I kind of expected <laughs> that if you were to call me, that would be the case. So uh, so it was, it was nice talking to you, and goodbye. <laughs> I had to call you back because you're being very, very 
you must be willfully obtuse about this because you sound like a smart, intelligent, well-informed, caring person. That said, I I would say the same about you. So uh, we're even, I guess. Okay. But no one in the wake of the shooting in Orlando is trying to repeal the second amendment or ban all gun ownership, private gun ownership, or prevent people from obtaining where they're legal concealed carry permits. They're talking about banning weapons of war, automatic weapons that make it possible for mass murderers to mass murder people more efficiently not allowing people on the terrorism watch list or the no-fly list to stroll into a gun shop and buy an automatic weapon or any weapon and closing the gun show loophole. How does that prevent you from carrying around a gun, which actually, and the statistics bear this out and all the research bear this out, makes you less safe, not more safe? How does, how do the, how does the reaction to what happened in Orlando and Sandy Hook and San Bernardino how does that how do you conflate that with or blow that up to they're coming for all my, my guns, all my guns, when that's just I mean, that's just a lie. That's just a lie. Okay, so from my perspective, the way that they define these things, the way that they define things like assault rifle, um, well, the problem is most of the time they don't define it. When they do, the category is broad enough that it catches a lot of things that are very useful for self defense. Furthermore, like there's this lack of understanding from a lot of people about what these rifles actually do. I mean an AR-15 is safer for you to use in a confined space like an apartment than, say, a 12-gauge shotgun oh because it's God, not oh going to God. go through seven walls. An AR-15 you know? is – you just – 49 people were just murdered in a confined space by somebody carrying that gun, and you're extolling its virtues in a confined space? Yeah, because it doesn't overpenetrate nearly as badly as a lot of comparable weapons. Okay, so th- we should send a thank you note to the killer – at Orlando for being so courteous to use this type of weapon because it didn't go through walls and kill people who weren't in the club who may have been passing by. The thing is that the difference between a weapon that is used to murder somebody and a weapon that is used to save somebody's life is purely in how it's used and who is using it, right? The same things that make it effective to protect yourself also make it effective at at murdering people. Who needs an automatic weapon, an AR-15, to defend themselves? Okay, so first off, let's let's talk about let's talk about automatic. Oh my god, no, no, no! You know what? I c- actually can't hold my own in a debate with a gun fetishist. <laughs> Again, the stats show that guns make people less safe, not more safe. That gun owners are four point five times greater odds of being victimized with a gun when they own a gun and often with their own gun, and the odds of somebody being killed were four point two times greater. When they had a gun on them and, and, and the idea that we need and wait and the idea that we need to let people have automatic weapons to protect themselves from like a home invasion that involves 50 people. Like, where is this happening where somebody needs to protect themselves, well, protect themselves as if they're taking on the Taliban, as if they are storming the beaches at Normandy. Those that's where those kinds of guns are appropriate and necessary is that kind of a gun? Is that kind of an automatic weapon necessary in a home invasion if you're going to protect yourself with a gun? Okay, so a couple of things. When you talk about automatic weapons, you're conflating things. The AR-15 is a semi-automatic, like virtually every other Good, then ban gun it. that you buy that's magazine-fed. So ban you pull the trigger ban, once, ban it fires all, once. Ban all of them. Ban everything so that's magazine-fed. 
ban them. Civilians don't need these guns for self-defense. Civilians do not need these weapons of war for self-defense. When you do that, you are banning my semi-automatic concealed carry firearm, my semi-automatic 9mm handgun, because it fires in exactly the same way. Good. One pull of the trigger, one shot. Good. I would, like to, I would like to ban your handgun. I think we should go back to muskets. If we're going to fetishize the Second Amendment... Now you're coming for the gun that I use to defend myself against violence, which could very well be anti-gay violence. Have you ever had to use it? Not yet, no. Do you, do you know that you are likelier to be shot and killed, likelier to be a victim of violence ah, because go. you have a gun on you? I remember now. I remember what I was going to say. I was going to say, do you know those statistics about if you have a gun, you're more likely to die from, as a victim of gun violence? You know that those include suicide, which are 80% of gun-related deaths in our country. So let's keep the guns coming. No, no, because that statistic is biased because it includes people who kill themselves with their own gun, which is not necessarily a fault of the gun. It's a fault of someone who wants to kill themselves. So by saying that you're more likely to die from a gun, it's not because somebody is breaking into my home and stealing my gun and shooting me with it, which very, very rarely happens. It's because someone has killed themselves with their own gun, which is 80 percent of all of all of all gun deaths. When you inflate the statistics like that, it makes it sound worse. Do you also know that from statistics from the FBI and, and I believe it was the FBI and the Department of Justice, there are somewhere between 500,000 and several million defensive gun uses each year? Perhaps we would have less cause for people to use their guns to defend themselves if we had fewer people out there with guns going after people, causing them to have to pull out their guns to defend themselves. If your stat is correct, which I'm not necessarily buying, but I'll take it as a point of argument and respond. Also, if guns make us safer, why are we so fucking unsafe in this country? We have more guns than any other Western industrialized world in private hands circulating constantly. If more guns made us more safe, we should be fucking pretty goddamn safe around here. And we are not safe. Guns do not make us okay. as individuals or us as a society safer. And the proof is in the fucking pudding. The proof is in the murder rate, the homicide rate, the shooting rate, the, the appalling number of gun deaths in this country every year. You actually, sorry, you gun fondlers, you don't have a leg to stand on. I get that you like your guns. I get that you want to own your guns. I get that guns give you a charge. I get that you want to feel safe. I get it. But you are lying to yourself and all of us are paying the price for the delusions of gun owners and for the misinterpretation of the Second Amendment by the Supreme Court. And it's a price that a lot of us just aren't willing to pay anymore. There's The blood is too deep, too thick on the ground to continue to accommodate your fantasies about the efficacy of guns or the safety that you believe erroneously they confer upon you and others. When, look around, they don't make you safer. They don't make us safer. See, Dan, this is why I was hoping you would call me back. And it was why I called you is because I believe that you have these opinions because of evidence that you've read. And, and you're a well-reasoned person who means well. Like, I feel like you're a rational person, which is why I'm hoping I can convince you. Because the statistics that I read indicate the opposite. There's like an entire book. Uh, where this guy goes through and he compares crime rates before and after uh, concealed carry legislation is passed. And in every case, crime either goes down or stays essentially the same. It does not increase when you pass permissive concealed carry laws. There's never been one mass shooting stopped by an armed concealed carry gun fondling passerby or person in the room ever. That's actually false, Dan. That's, that's happened before. Appalachian School of Law. Every time a gun is used in self-defense... In the home, there are seven assaults or murders, 11 suicide attempts, and four accidents involving guns in or around the home. 
seems like it's not worth it. Because my statistics are, are showing... Wait, and, and let's like back all the way the fuck up. The gun restrictions that people are talking about, terror list, no-fly list, banning weapons of war, and maybe it's like pornography. We know them when we see them. We know them when we're mopping up the blood when a weapon of war has been used. So let's like figure out how we can define which ones are weapons of war and ban them, and maybe you can keep your precious gun. Nobody's talking about what I would like to see people talking about, what I would advocate, but it's not on the table, repealing the fucking Second Amendment and banning guns, period, which is what I would favor, but no one's floating that. So you're like hand-wringy concerns about people coming for your guns. The sex advice podcast faggot community can't come for your guns. No one is under any illusion that we're coming for your guns. What I do see, though, and there's an op-ed in the New York Times today making this bullshit argument, that f- that – any gun restrictions, any new laws in the wake of San Bernardino, Sandy Hook, and now Orlando is uh, taking our guns. It's not. It's taking AR-15s out of the hands of psychos. I've always wanted to ask a gun person this. This is what I don't understand about gun people. I know somebody has a gun and I think, dangerous lunatic. That's what first comes to my mind. Not patriot, not somebody I want around in a crisis, not somebody I feel comfortable with my kid playing at his house. I think fucking nut. I have to think fucking nut. I have to default to thinking fucking nut. And what I don't understand about gun people who want to be regarded as heroic patriots, concern for everybody's safety, concern for freedom and the constitution is if the bar was set really high for gun ownership, you had to take safety classes. You had to pass mental health exams. You had to be professionally trained and licensed and have that license renewed. Then if I knew you had a gun, I would think there's a smart, trustworthy person who knows what he's doing. There's somebody I want around in an emergency. Right now with guns being given out in cereal boxes in this country, I think somebody with a gun as likely a lunatic or not, and I have to default to presuming a lunatic because giving somebody with a gun the benefit of the doubt and thinking they're maybe not a lunatic could get me or my family or my kid killed. So why don't gun owners, why don't people who really love guns want guns to symbolize for the rest of us who don't own guns that somebody is a quality person with a lot of training and is not crazy because they couldn't have the gun if they hadn't proved all of those things? Because it just disenfranchises people who can't afford the amount of money it takes to do that stuff. The states with really restrictive concealed carry permits, it costs like upwards of like a grand to get them if you can get them because you can be arbitrarily denied for any reason without having any proof on it. I have friends of mine who I would like to see carry and have expressed interest, but because guns are expensive, they're having a hard enough time with that. And that's like three to $500 for a carry gun. I can't expect them to drop $1,200 in qualifications. Maybe you should start a charity to buy guns for the impoverished. And the- and, and the people who are poor are more likely to live in areas with high crime, and they're more likely to need them for self-defense, Dan. When I see someone with a gun, I think that someone could potentially – has the potential to, to be dangerous in the same way that someone who's six foot five and 250 pounds that can bench press a truck is dangerous. doesn't mean he's a bad guy. just means he has the capability to do harm. Whether or not he chooses to do harm is another thing. If he's on my side, I feel better knowing he's there because he's my you know, six foot five, 250-pound friend. You're not really answering my question. I get the financial concern and maybe we can start a charity and get all the pop stars who haven't been murdered after their concerts by deranged fans to sing a song to help raise money to buy guns and help pay for training and licensing for the impoverished. But right now, for the vast majority of us who are not gun owners, we hear gun owner and we think fucking nut. 
We don't think well-trained, smart, good to have around in a crisis. We think probably this person is the crisis that we don't want to have around. And I'm sorry, that's just like that's because a you probably fact. don't know a lot of people who are guns. My dad's a cop, my brother's a cop, my uncles are cops. I grew up in a house with guns. And you think that they're dangerous? No, but I know them personally. You think that all these people are psychopaths? I know them personally. I, I appreciate your right-wing arguing style. I know them so out of, personally. So out, of your, out of your sample size of, of, of like five people you know who own guns, they're decent people that you know personally. So why is it that someone you don't know who owns a gun is automatically a psychopath? We, I think we're going to have to end it there. You're 100% wrong, and I hope you lose this political debate. And I hope one day, I hope one day they do come for your guns, and I hope one day we live in a world without any guns at all. Can I refer you to the Pink Pistols at least? There's a lot of folks there who would love to have this conversation with you. The Pink Pistols have an op-ed in the New York Times on the day we're speaking that is a package of lies. The Pink Pistols, the, the idiot from the Pink Pistols who wrote the op-ed in the New York Times – suggest that it would have been great if there'd only been a lot more people in that bar with guns so that they could have started firing blindly into the dark at each other to help the murderer up his body count, which would have been the only goal. Donald Trump said that the day after the day in the days after Orlando, that there needed to be other people there with guns. The NRA thinks that it's a bad idea. Wayne law fucking Pierre got on TV and said that they do not support concealed carry in bars. They don't think people should have guns where they're drinking. Hello, NRA people drink in their homes. Maybe we shouldn't let them have guns there either. Or maybe you should make it so people can't carry guns when they're drinking, regardless of where they're at. Your position is to the right of the NRA. The Pink Pistols, that gay gun fondling organization, their position is to the right of the NR fucking A. I didn't know there was a right to the NR fucking A on guns, but the queer gun owners and queer gun humpers are there, and I want nothing to do with them. We have to go. It was a pleasure talking with you. I like arguing with people, but we have to go. And one more time, you're wrong. Okay, well, thanks for calling, Dan. It was, it was, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this. Bye. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling about um, conspiracy theories with the awful tragedy um, in Orlando recently. We all know the conspiracy theorists are going to come out. Well, somebody that's very, very close to me has just revealed themselves as someone that believes that 9-11 and Sandy Hook were conspiracies. What do you do in that situation? How do you engage with a person like this? I, you know, put up the boundaries that we're not going to talk about this. Like, I know you're a better person than this. Is this revealing something in their true character? What, what do you do? I'm at a loss. What I would do in a situation like that, I would back slowly out of the room and never speak to that person ever again because I don't have a lot of room in my life for irrational people and people who believe in conspiracy theories and people who are that detached from reality. They're not going to be good and reliable friends. The other option is the one you identified, which is just to say to that person, yeah, we're not talking about that. Shut up. And change the subject. Or I'm going to take Dan Savage's advice and back slowly out of the room and never see you again. Hey, Dan. Most guys I've been with, I'm a top, generally douche and clean out uh, before uh, anal. But recently I've heard of a sort of a trend with guys just sort of winging it or saying that they're just kind of good to go for no reason. As in, they don't do any sort of social work. And I was wondering if that's even possible. I mean, what amount of fiber 
would a guy have to be taking in for there to be no Santorum at all? I just, I've never seen it. I can't imagine it. I've never experienced it myself. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on this seemingly new trend. There are a lot of people out there who don't douche before anal sex, not because they're interested in whipping up a hot steaming pile of Santorum or getting shit all over a dick, but because in their experience, they don't really need to. There are folks out there who are good to go, who know when they're empty, who perhaps get a lot of fiber in their diet and have never had or rarely had a problem with fecal matter during anal intercourse. Know thyself, as someone said about something, also applies to anal. If you know yourself well enough, if you have a decent diet, it might not be a problem. You may not need to douche. Some people douche just for the peace of mind so that they can throw themselves into the anal and not have to worry about it. But there are folks out there who douche when they feel it's necessary or douche rarely or douche not at all. And they aren't all scat queens. Despite the hype, despite our fear of the butt, you know, your rear end isn't a chocolate frozen yogurt dispenser in the back of a tasty freeze in Lubbock, Texas during a brownout. It's not constantly leaking brown sort of viscous fluid. You know, you can stick your finger in your butt and come out relatively clean most of the time because if you have solid compact turds and you're regular, after you take that constitutional, you're empty. And you're going to be goodish to go. If you're not regular, you don't get a lot of fiber. Yeah, I would err on the side of douching if I were you. But don't look at people who don't douche and assume that they are not concerned with preventing Santorum or shitting all over their partners because that ain't necessarily so. Oh. Hey, Dan. So I'm a community college teacher on the West Coast. And I teach a human sexuality class and uh, use your podcast, regularly play some of the calls to talk about some issues. And it's great. And we talk about GGG and all that type of stuff. And um, today in class, we were talking about fetishes and kinks and BDSM and all that stuff. And um, so I'm here with my class. And they have a question here for you that they would like you to answer, maybe an expert that you bring on to answer. Um, and that question is, what is the best way to approach talking about your partner about introducing a fetish into the relationship? Um, how do you get your completely vanilla partner to spice things up without freaking them out? Hi, class. Nice to get a call from you. Uh, thank you for inviting me to sit in today. Let's zoom out for a second. So let's say you're in a vanilla relationship and you're having vanilla sex with your vanilla partner and that's all you've ever had because you haven't rolled out your kinks. Your partner, who you presume to be vanilla, is presuming the same thing about you. And that's the problem. Like, oh, they think I'm vanilla. So I have to tell them about my kinks and then I'm not going to be vanilla anymore. But why are you assuming that they're vanilla or completely vanilla when you, having presented yourself as vanilla, are not yourself completely vanilla? You could roll out your kinks and the person that you think or assume or to be completely vanilla because that's the only way you guys have ever interacted sexually – might roll their kinks out in response or you could win the kink lottery and roll out your kinks and discover that they share them. And I know people that that has happened to. They laid their kink cards on the table and the person across the table smiled and laid the identical cards down themselves. Yahtzee. When that happens, that is a, that is a small miracle. It's a universe mitzvah, the universe doing you a good. 
Now, rolling out your kinks to somebody who hasn't just presented vanilla but is actually vanilla, don't reveal your kinks like you're sharing your cancer diagnosis. You don't go in and say, oh, I have kink leukemia. You have to roll your kinks out like they're Christmas presents on Christmas morning. Not if you're with me, these are the things you're going to have to do. But if you're with me, these are the fun things we're going to get to do because these are things that I enjoy. And what are the things that you enjoy? That's an important part of laying your kink cards on the table is inviting them to lay theirs on the table as well to share with you their fantasies or fetishes or secret desires at the same time. Now let's say that you've laid your kink cards down on the table and they got no kink cards of their own. They are just 100% vanilla. How do you get them to go there with you? Well, you continue to demonstrate to them that vanilla sex is something that you are good at and that you enjoy and you're going to continue to meet their needs and you take baby steps towards yours. If you are interested in bondage, you roll that out a little at a time. You don't go for like the crazy stuff you've seen on Tumblr. You go for the silk ties and bed restraints from the sex shop that are pretty mild and not too terribly threatening. You have to recognize though that there are some kinks that people aren't going to be able to do because they're going to shock them or traumatize them or it's a fetish too far. Some kinks are so extreme that you really can't expect an indulgent vanilla partner to go there necessarily. And you have to use your best judgment where that's concerned. If you want to piss in someone's mouth, that's a high bar to set. That is perhaps a fetish too far. Somebody isn't going to lose their GGG card if they can't go there for you. But if all you want is to lick their feet because you're a foot fetishist, that's something that I think kinky people of a certain sort of middling stripe have a right to expect as a matter of course, that kind of indulgence because we should be good giving and game for our partners and not just vanilla people in kink discordant relationships being GGG for their kinky partners, but also again, kinky people being GGG for their vanilla partners. I've heard from too many people who had partners who rolled out a diaper fetish or a BDSM fetish who then, after having pretty much vanilla standard sex that they both enjoyed, stopped wanting to have vanilla sex at all. And so the vanilla partner was constantly having to meet the kink need, constantly having to perform, constantly having to do this thing that as much as they enjoyed doing it for their partner, there wasn't a lot of independent pleasure in it for them. And you just can't do that. If your kinks are being indulged, be careful. Be GGG for your vanilla partner and indulge them in the kind of vanilla sex that created your sexual bond and that sexual intimacy that made you feel comfortable enough to reveal your kinks to them in the first place. Bust that out on the regular as well. And now before I dismiss class today, an assignment, some extra reading for everyone. I want you to go find The Birds and the Bees, an essay about sexuality by Gore Vidal. It's in his collection of essays, United States. There are problems with it, but there's also tremendous insight in it. And I think you guys should uh, go read it and have a discussion. Birds and the Beast, Gorvidal essay. Enjoy. Hey, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old woman up here in the great white north of Canada. I have a dating conundrum. I've been single for just about a year now. Haven't really had any sex in that time either. Got lots of cobwebs in my vagina. But I've been trying to put myself out there. I'm kind of new to dating. I was with my last partner for five years. Was started out pretty young. Um, but I'm finding myself to be extremely friendable. Um, maybe I'm putting out the wrong signs or doing something wrong. But I just don't know how to get past that point of being like, I want to fuck you. 
So if you have any advice, I would love that. I'm kind of new to being single and putting myself out there. Joining me in the studio today to help answer this question, Maura Weigel. She's a writer and academic. Her writings appeared in The Guardian, The Nation, The New Republic, and other publications. And she is the author, and this is what qualifies you to field this question <laughs> with me, the author of the new book, Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. Thanks for dropping in. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So before we get to the question, we're going to throw dating questions at okay. you. Even though you haven't written an advice manual for people who are dating, but you've written a history of dating. It's a really nerdy advice manual. <laughs> <laughs> what is the history of dating? When was dating invented? So dating was invented, I like to say, in 1896, which is the first time we see the word date uh, being used on the on the print record that way. It's really... Meaning uh, a... a, a Going out with someone who's a prospective romantic partner. Exactly. So it's really, when we think about it, it sounds weird now because we take it for granted. But in most times, in most places in human history, this is not how people, people have not been left to their own devices to meet up and pair off. It's been organized by family or by, say, your priest or your rabbi. Yenta. Your Yenta. Actually, a very angry letter writer wrote into the New York Times, and I apparently misused the word Yenta, and apparently we all do, and it's really a shadshin, is what you oh, call well, someone. excuse the fuck out of me, but I got my education from Fiddler on the Roof, and I'm going to keep using well, Yenta until they rewrite the show. Appar- anyway, this is what I actually got a really lot of angry mail from like <laughs> several old Jewish people um, about that. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, exactly. In most times and places, it's been organized by your family or your community, whether it's the Jane Austen scenario where you're like in your parlor. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, a church dance or a factory social. Around 1900, you get huge numbers of young people moving to cities in America. And you get women working outside the home in vastly greater numbers than they had. And those things add up to young people mixing and meeting up the ways they want. Uh, So, yeah, that's what I mean by the invention of dating. Was it a good thing or a bad thing? You know, it had to suck when your parents or the yenta, 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 I'm just going to say it, (laughs) was picking your spouse for you that had to suck you might get somebody imposed upon you who was not your first choice or your 5000th choice but there are people out there who are socially inept people out there who aren't who don't have game as they would say now right and is the new order the dating order worse for them I think it's, you know, it's hard to say. It probably is worse for those people. I think the thing that always strikes me is just the sheer scarcity of people in the predating situation. I mean, you think in a Jane Austen novel what a huge deal it is when, like, one new dude comes to their hamlet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then think about moving to the city and how many people you see on the street every day. So I think that... Not just on the street. Or on your work. dating apps on Tinder. Yes. In bars and clubs. Yeah. Well, bars was like the 3D Tinder before Tinder, you know, and now... <laughs> 3D uh, Tinder. I love that. <laughs> That's a great phrase. Um, Consider it stolen. But uh, I stole it from a from a sandwich board outside a bar. So now we're spreading <laughs> the love. Uh, 3D Tinder. But yeah, so I think it's hard. It's always ambivalent. I mean, it's a source of freedom uh, and it's also a source of pressure on young people. And I think my books really investigates how it overlaps with the history of working, mm-hmm. the history of dating. And I think that especially now when people feel so pressed for time, it often can feel almost burdensome to have to have a personal life on top of everything else you're how, doing. How big a driver was the women's liberation movement, was women entering the workforce, Was is gender equality in this? Because Huge. it used to be that the, the spouse, the husband, was imposed on her. There was this market for daughters, and daughters were bartered and traded away and had no control and no power, and then no power within the relationship. And all of that was turned on its head, and rightfully so, 100 years ago. And it really is the, the history of dating and the story of dating 
really the history of uh, a gender equality movement, the history of the women's liberation movement? I hope so. I hope that's the long, long end point towards which it's tending. I mean, not to be depressing, but in a lot of ways, women still aren't equal. You know, we still don't earn as much money. We still have to bear the burdens of reproduction, different kinds of things. So I think that it does tend in that direction. Uh, it, of course, also, you know, selling women stuff to make them feel desirable on the dating market also becomes a huge industry that puts new kinds of pressures on women. So, but yeah, I think it's basically... you can't sell that shit to women unless you can make them feel bad about whatever it is they have now. Yes. Telling women that something is wrong with them that they didn't even know existed and then you're going to sell them this thing to fix it is like a great invention of the American economy in the 20th century, but... Bernie Sanders was going to end that. I believe that was part of his platform. Yeah. That's one of the negative, the downsides of capitalism. (laughs) It definitely is. I was interviewed on a Swedish, someone someone from Scandinavia interviewed me a while ago and said, it sounds like you just want to date in the world of Bernie. And I said, (laughs) maybe, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Um, But yeah, too bad. Let's talk about this woman's dating conundrum. Single for a year, cobwebs in the vagina, new to dating or return to dating. So what's she doing wrong? Well, I don't know. I was curious because she talked about feeling like she wasn't uh, telegraphing her desires clearly enough. I wish I could be there on a date with her because I'm curious how it could be ambiguous. Uh, I mean, I'm curious about what she's doing in terms of how she's communicating over apps or in real life Mm -hmm. to communicate what she wants. I do think women, you know, there's this long history and it's so funny. I feel like our romantic product protocols or beliefs about gender often lag behind sort of like in the workplace or in education, other places. I think there, a lot of women do still feel like they can't take initiative or be aggressive. And maybe she's suffering from some of that. Mm-hmm. I think you can somewhat straightforwardly tell people you're interested in their dick. But my Catholic mom's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, that always worked for me, but I dated dudes. Wanna fuck was a totally legit and successful pickup line. Yeah. In dude land. In fact, well, she's, she's in looking in one kind, another kind of dude land. That's true. But a lot, of, you know, women are, it's another place where women are trapped between two sort of opposite cultural messages. Yeah. But there are guys who are going to run screaming from you if you seem too aggressive, you seem too sexual. But then if you hang back and you seem too cold and indifferent, a guy who might be interested in you might assume that you're not interested in him and not want to press his case or right. seem like he's harassing you and then be a bad dude. Right. So you have to, like, how do you walk that line? How do you telegraph interest without worrying? Well, I guess you have to stop worrying about being perceived as a slut by some people who are going to negatively and unfairly judge you for being a woman with desire and agency. Yeah. Well, just to like nerd out about history for one second, since that is what I bring to the table. One thing that fascinated me is back in the era of like the dude coming to your mom's house and trying to visit you in your parlor, all the advice writers actually really emphasize that it was always on the woman to invite the man to do that, that it Mm -hmm. wasn't. Now I think we think it's like this biological deep thing that it's like men have desire and agency and women just sit there like little objects waiting to become objects of desire. But actually, I mean, even it's only 100 years ago, you'd get these advice writers saying, oh, no man would call on you unless you invited him. That would be very déclassé. So I think I'd like to say that just to myth bust a little bit on this idea Idea That's that, a great like, detail. That's yeah. really interesting. Um, and so I, I, mean, I always like to use history to sort of call into question these kinds of gender norms. I think it's true. Women do face this double bind about that. I think there are ways to telegraph interests that aren't quite as direct as saying wanna fuck. Uh, you know, through gesture, smiling. I just uh, wrote a long article. I did you all this. You can get it on a t-shirt. You can get you wanna could. fuck on a t-shirt. Then... Or like a necklace. I always wish there was like a symbol <laughs> that you could, it's like this like way Like those means. name necklaces that like, yeah, just like, like wanna fuck. On a little chain. <laughs> 
Um, but you, wear, I think- you wear your Lori necklace for half the date, and then if you want him, you go to the bathroom, excuse yourself, and change to your wanna fuck necklace and see if he notices. That's my business. That's my startup idea. I just moved to San Francisco. <laughs> now everyone's like, what's your business? Um, but I think also there are all sorts of physical ways to telegraph it. There's been a ton of research on human flirting gestures and mm-hmm. like all the parts of it that are not uh, – verbal most of it isn't verbal but there are all these ways i mean this sounds so goofy but it's like certain kinds of postures turning yourself towards someone smiling the killer is wait a scientist taught this to me you're supposed to look at no you're supposed to expose your neck apparently lots of animal species do this seriously you don't have long hair but look at someone Mm -hmm. toss your hair back and then like look at them again and expose your neck it works every time you will get laid you will no longer be in the friend zone if you remember to expose your neck. yeah you got to expose the neck or your palms of your hands apparently pixie haircut does everyone you see assume you're into them I don't know. I've never had the courage to get a pixie caught haircut my head's too big but I I think maybe they would I don't know maybe that's part of their allure (laughs) Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. I'm a 21-year-old, straight, cisgendered female living in the New York Tri-State area. I'm calling in regards to communication in the early stages of talking to someone. I've dabbled in online dating as well as dating in college, and I've come across guys who are really flaky when it comes to texting. For example, this one guy I've been talking to won't respond to texts or Snapchats for two or three weeks at a time, And then out of the blue, I'll hear from him saying that we should hang out and that he's really sorry. He was just really busy. He isn't the first one who will do this. And at first, it made me angry. I was a firm believer in the idea that if he was interested, he would make the effort to contact me. But on the other hand, as a millennial trying to start their career, dating other millennials trying to start their careers, is the being busy excuse actually a legitimate reason? And that I shouldn't write them off and they don't reach out for weeks at a time? I myself am a career-driven recent college grad who works in the corporate sector, and as busy as I am, I never, I'm never, i never a flaky communicator, or in the least, if I'm not interested, I make it clear. In the past, I've tried to communicate my frustration about this, either directly or through indirect humor, and then I was made to feel like I'm crazy or that I'm looking for something serious, and they consider that clingy. If these guys never responded again, I get the hint. They're not interested. But most of the time, these guys will just halt communication and then pick it back up when it's more convenient for them. Is my anger towards this behavior unjustified? Should I not immediately write these guys off if I don't hear from them again for a long time? Or am I just overthinking this and maybe they're just really busy and that we all make time for people when we can and that I shouldn't take it so personally? So in your history of dating, do you get the impact of technology on dating and how it's shaping and warping it? I do. Um, and in fact, that was really the concept for the book. At first, I had thought I'd do sort of a straightforward chronological history. But what I ended up really wanting to do was to explore all these concepts we have in the present. So the whole history goes kind of back and forth between past and present. Technology, as well as economic change, has just constantly changed how people date. If you want to laugh, you could read some of the anxiety that parents and uh, teachers felt about the automobile. Which or was the a, telephone. Exactly. The telephone, the automobile. I mean, I really tend to think of technology in a very broad way. In a way, I think a bar is like a technology. Mm-hmm. It's like a social medium. And people used to have t- anxiety about bars. Looking for Mr. Goodbar, that film with Diane yes. Keaton from the... 70s about the about the straight pickup scene, straight bars, singles bars, and how dangerous they were. We constantly have these sex panics, like you said, about the telephone, about the car, because you could be alone with someone's daughter in a car. Somebody yeah. could call your house and speak to your – it's always your daughters – speak to your daughters without your knowledge or permission. Yeah. Because they could invade the the home. 
And we're having these sex panics now about dating apps, about uh, about uh, too many choices. Yeah. And how paralyzing that can seem for some. Too much, too many hookups. Yeah. No, and that was exactly. I mean, frankly, the whole motive behind writing the book was wanting to push back against that kind of panic. I was a straight, mostly single woman, um, reading an article every other week in the New York Times that was like romance was the same forever and then the cell phone came and now the world's over because tinder and i feel like there's like an article like that every single week and there i sort is. of both as a and you know which is a great way to sell parents articles which is like what most of these publications are trying to do but i feel like both as a woman who hoped that men and sex with them was not over and as a historian i was like <laughs> i am skeptical of this claim i mean there was i think there was literally a six-month period where the end of men the end of sex and the end of courtship were all like major publications or books i was like really so the whole my whole desire to write this book was to like push back against that kind of moral panic and indeed what i learned is like the entire history of dating basically as soon as young people and especially young women get agency to go out and meet and maybe have sex with whoever they want um, they you do have it. Con- yes, and you have constant parental anxiety about it. Um, in the 50s, you get the Archbishop of Chicago talking about how dangerous going steady is. and like, <laughs> sort of, He says it's an intolerable occasion for sin. And he was not wrong. I mean, look at the 60s. Uh, yeah, but. <laughs> we're, we want to be lectured by Catholic bishops about occasions for sin. His name was Alphonsus Stritch. He has one of my favorite names in history. <laughs> So, so this woman, yeah. we eventually, we, the book is fascinating. It's fascinating talking to you, but, you know, the conceit of the program is we have to answer these questions. From yeah, these yeah. So. And I say that just to help people calm down because I think that there's a certain kind of anxiety sometimes about new technologies that can be really counterproductive. At least that was how I experienced it. You know, mm-hmm. we freak out about how to game these apps or how to use them in a way that actually really prevents us from connecting with people. It does make a lot of money for the Tinder industrial complex, as I call it. But, uh yeah, the woman. So this woman's question was about texting, right? That she, the wire guy is so flaky, and she doesn't hear from them for two or three weeks. Yeah, and it's uh, you know simple, straightforward answer. It's because he's not interested in you as a romantic possibility. You're just yeah. a booty call. When you only hear from somebody every three weeks or once a month. It's because they're horny and there's nobody else. Yeah, it's hard because I do try to. I mean, it's funny. I I always think about how again, like. It is the way that we communicate by text now, I think, to a certain extent, is a reflection of how we work in our technology. So I always think of like the old timey movie where the guy's like, I'll pick you up at seven. And it's like, who the fuck knows if they're going to be done with work at seven? Like everyone works in a different way. So we text each other after work. But then again, you know, it is true that getting a text that's like, you up is like not the same as being asked out to dinner at seven. So I think you're probably right that if people are being this flaky, I don't think, I don't think they're being flaky at all. I think it's quite clear. I yeah. think their meaning, their intent, what they're interested in is absolutely obvious. You're just not calling. You're just not allowing yourself to correctly interpret this to protect your own ego. Like, what could it mean? Is he only right. really wanting to date me once every three weeks? Is he still on the fence about No, 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 no. He likes right. you. He's attracted to you. He'd like to put his dick in you every once in a while. <laughs> but he doesn't want to date you. He doesn't want to be with you. Yeah. But he's into you enough to be sexual with you. And sometimes, you know, you hook up with people. You hook up with them a few times and then suddenly they do want to date you. So I'm not telling yeah. you to dis- disregard these guys or delete right. them. If you right. want to fuck them, fuck them. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe a relationship will come of that. Maybe a relationship won't come of that. If you don't want to fuck somebody who only, you know, who's telling you, at least where I'm at right now, I'm not interested in you as a romantic yeah. partner, not interested in being with you, then don't fuck these guys. Yeah. It's interesting too. I notice, I mean, I notice this on the podcast a fair bit that people call in and say, oh, should I feel angry? Is it like weird or wrong that I feel angry? And to her, I would say, 
you do feel angry. You know, feelings are facts. You clearly do. So it seems as if she probably isn't interested in that kind of casual sexual relationship. On the other hand, I've often encountered straight women who I think feel some kind of hang up about not having, they sort of can't admit to themselves that they just want to fuck someone too. And so then they try to sort of spin it into a relationship. I know many terrible straight men in New York who've gotten relationships with lovely women this way. It's like she slept with him by accident once. Right. And then, but I think that it sounds And that's if, that slut shaming yeah. shit that the culture heaps up on women. Totally. That a dude can go out there and be sexual and it can just be about the sex. But for you to be sexual, you have to be interested in commitment and intimacy and over the long term or you're a bad woman. Right. You're a slatternly, slatternly woman. That's such a yeah. hard word to say out loud. And so you do I think see. Shakespeare invented that word. Do you know? Really? I think I he didn't did. Know that. Yeah, anyway. You do see women, often, not always, <laughs> sometimes I see gay dudes doing this too, blowing up something that should have been a one off into a relationship so that they don't feel guilty about having given themselves permission to have sex with this person. I think that's exactly right. And this particular caller sounds like she is actually maybe angry and upset and isn't in that situation. But if she is, she should by all means have casual sex with this flaky texture. If not, I'd say let it go because it seems to be making her angry and upset. And wait for some other dude to come along. Yeah. And go get a vibrator (laughs) in the interim. Hey, Dan. This is a late 30s bisexual female. I have been in a relationship, a monogamous relationship for uh, with a woman for the past 17 years. And within the last few months, we have split. Since then, I have opted to put myself out on um, a dating app. I'm, I've put myself on Tinder and have been chatting with a couple different guys. So my question is, what is the etiquette for being on these apps? If I am currently sleeping with someone, and wanting to meet up with someone else, am I responsible for, or should I, is the right thing to do to disclose that I am currently sleeping with someone else if I am having protected sex and using condoms? We use dating to mean that you're kind of auditioning people for life partner status, you're maybe mate, maybe a spouse. But dating can also mean just fucking around. Right. It has a very wide a very wide range of possible meanings, dating. Because and it used to be, I think, standard. Now there's this weird assumption, I often get this from, from younger people, that if you're if somebody's if you're dating someone, that that's an exclusive committed default assumption monogamous relationship. Yeah. And that wasn't always the assumption. You would date multiple people. Dating is what you did before you got serious about someone. Dating was before going steady, before engagement, <laughs> before marriage. There was this kind of dating limbo where it wasn't if you went on a few dates with somebody it wasn't necessarily a commitment but then also there probably wasn't sex yeah although you'd be surprised you'd be surprised that's one of the funnest things about looking back at at the history of it is like in fact people did have sex before the 1960s oh my god your grandparents were whores oh my god especially in the 1920s and we forget that the (laughs) phrase sexual revolution was coined in the 1920s about the 1920s they were wild those speakeasies anyway but yeah so people did have sex before the 1960s or so I always laugh my husband went on one an early date we ran into someone else he'd been involved with and he was like oh yeah we dated we dated for like he was like two weeks I was less and I was like what does that mean and my best friend was like he had sex they had sex like four times relaxed <laughs> in two um, weeks or you know however I think he said it was like a week maybe less I was like what does dating for a week or maybe less mean um, so your husband wasn't a virgin on his wedding night I'm so sad for you really how no, awful no, I'm to go home happy for I'm you. like imagine sleeping with a male virgin on your wedding night <laughs> <laughs> um so anyway, yeah, dating. I think it has had that inversion where now young people, because of what 
stuffy folks call hookup culture, there tends to be this expectation that you hook up a few times and then DTR, you know, then define the relationship. And Mm. now people use dating to refer to that more serious stage when you've decided to commit. Whereas earlier, I think people used it to talk about the going out leading up to sex. This person is a saint. Everyone on Tinder is probably sleeping with someone else. I think that it's the etiquette on these app, on an app, especially like Tinder, uh, is that you're presumed non-monogamous or non-exclusive with anyone you're seeing until otherwise stated. It, it, but, right, until you make it explicit. Yeah. That it's not the – it doesn't default to a monogamous assumption. Right. But if you're meeting on Tinder, if you're out there dating, if it's friends with benefits, if there hasn't been an explicit conversation and negotiation around right. exclusivity – you're free to fuck other people. Exactly. And you don't necessarily have to disclose the fact that you're fucking other people because that should just be assumed. Right. Because Tinder is a bathhouse in your pocket and you don't walk up to people in a sex club and say, yeah. are you only having sex with me tonight or only having sex with me ever again? You don't have sex with me now? Like- <laughs> I always think it's so funny. I think of Grinder as a bathhouse in your pocket and it seems more fun for that reason. Tinder to me feels like a college party in your pocket that it's like sort of like <laughs> awkward straight people. I don't know, mostly obviously not exclusively, but uh, but yeah, I feel like Tinder, you should assume what you would assume like making out with someone at a frat or Girls dispatch with this call, so she shouldn't feel bad about not necessarily disclosing. If you get serious about somebody and they're fucking on the regular and they're hanging out, it becomes more like a relationship. At that point, you may have to proactively disclose that you're still fucking other people if indeed at that point you still are fucking other people. I want to ask you how you met your husband. Oh, we have a funny story. We sat next to each other in a 815 German class, freshman year of college, had a lot of conversations that were like, do you want to go to like the discotheque with me? Like, should we go to the grocery store? All those like first year language conversations. Never oh, really, in German. In German. It was like, musstest du mit mir in die discotheque or whatever. Scheißen Sie nicht auf den Boden? Oh my God, please. Bist du meine lesbische Großmutter? Uh, ich kenne sie nicht. Jetzt können das vielleicht uns vielleicht vorstellen. We've exhausted my German. Please go um, on with your point. There are so many good dirty words in German. It's too bad. Uh, so yeah, we he was like kind of a punk rocker and I was a total goody two-shoes. I had another boyfriend. I was just like, oh, he's cute, but he's bad. We never hung out in college. So we hadn't seen each other for eight years and we ran into each other at an engagement party for two women, one of whom was our mutual friend. They subsequently didn't get married which probably was a good thing uh, in that particular case. At that time, I was dating someone else. He was crazy. Uh, I Were you already that. working on the book when you met him? Uh, well, I was sort of like working on the ideas for the book. And then it was funny. We got serious sort of as I like really started. So it left me in a lot of ethical quandaries about and my research. Your initial relationship, was it a dating thing? Or did you guys just start fucking and then realize you had to break up with the guy that you were with? How did it work for the dating book writer? It was very chaste because when we met, the next week, I actually, I studied Chinese, which is another story, but I had a fellowship to go to Tsinghua in Beijing for four months. So we met, we had what we called the ambiguous date, where we went out for like a drink and we're like, what? People go out for drinks just as friends when they've just met and they're dating other people. And then I went to China, in China, sort of gained the distance to see that this sexy lunatic I had been dating at the time was not Mr. Moira forever and sort of called that off and returned. And then we didn't, we hung out with friends. I guess we did have a proper date or two. And then pretty quickly, I think we realized we really got on. So you're married to someone where you basically skip past the whole dating process as we, you were working on a book on the history of dating. <laughs> well, we were, I think we, we had a few dates. He did, he organized one extremely good date uh, early on. He threw a dinner party with all his friends that was sort of like, 
he joked they were his props to make him look good. I think this is a good dating tip, by the way. A dinner party, if you're trying to seduce someone, throw a party, be like, hey, it's not a big deal. I'm cooking. Just come on by. And then get all your friends there to make you look great. Do you know why I think that's important and a good tip for straight guys particularly is, as Louis C.K. says in that brilliant routine, like, it's amazing that women will even talk to right. men considering all the violence that women are subjected to by men. Right. And what women need to see, if you're going to go out, if you're a guy, you're going to go out to a club, don't go out alone. Go out with friends because that is an implicit vouch for you as a human being, even if it's not a perfect right. or infallible vouch because there are people with friends who are shitty people. But to have a dinner party and to have somebody that you're interested in romantically, see that you have friends, see how you interact with those people, see in their eyes how they regard you. Yeah. Is a way of being vouched for. And for women who are thinking about getting naked with you, it's important to be vouched for. Totally. And it's really nice to see someone's world that way. I mean, for, you know, in sort of gross, gamey, gamey version, it also made me extremely nervous because they were all good friends and I didn't know anyone. But uh, but I think you're exactly right. It is a way to establish that someone's like probably not a serial killer and maybe even a funny, charming, intelligent individual. Person who deserves a blowjob. Yeah. And who's like way better in English than in freshman year German class. Way funnier <laughs> and more charming. Before we let you go, just one last like dating blow our minds fact that people may not be familiar with. Okay, so my favorite fact is that when you first get women making dates with men, especially if they let men take them out to hot dinner, when that first starts happening around 1900, the police and the vice squads and the social workers all think it's prostitution and all kinds of women get arrested for it. For having dinner. Yeah, for being asked out to dinner. And there are these incredible – I mean, there's so many anecdotes. I don't even know which one to pick. But all these incredible stories of women who are either brought before the vice squad, you know, then as now, it's also used as a pretext to police, like, certain kinds of people. So it's, like, women of color, working class women. Um, I mean, queer women are also – it's, like, the whole other conversation, that policing history – but yes, you get all these women in court or in the vice squad or in the reformatory saying, really, he just gave me dinner. I didn't take money. And there's also all these undercover vice investigators who go to bars to sort of flirt with women and see if they try to make a date. I mean, sex workers still do talk and about making dates. Them. Then arrest them. But there's one anecdote. It's in the book, but about a woman who clearly – it's so funny because she's so clearly messing with the investigator and he doesn't get it uh-huh. in his notes. And she's like, well, could you maybe come to the butcher with me and pay my bill? And then I also need this. And she's basically trying to get him to buy her all this stuff that she needs without ever asking for cash, which is what would give him – the pretext to arrest her. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, there are all sorts of lovely anecdotes of women being very clever. There's an Irish Catholic mother who goes into the Bedford Reformatory, which is this nightmare institution in upstate New York where they take women who've made dates and teach them how to be garment working slaves or whatever, you know, rehabilitate them. And uh, this woman comes in and is defending her daughter and saying she's not a prostitute. She only ever goes out with Joe Daly and he just takes her to Coney Island in the movies. He doesn't give her any cash. So this Irish Catholic mother, for all the complexes they give us, defending her daughter to the vice squad in the reformatory. It was very charming to me. The book is Labor of Love, <laughs> The Invention of Dating by Maura Weigel. It was, it's fascinating. I can't wait to read it. I apologize I wasn't able to read it before you dropped by. But now I'm excited to read You're it. You're a after character in the 90s chapter, briefly. <laughs> oh all in God. a good way. But anyway, thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old straight male who recently broke up with my 33-year-old living girlfriend. She's a divorcee of a nine-year marriage that ended due to an infidelity with her ex-husband. She's an attractive, loving girl who treated me like a king, spending a lot of money on me from the small fortune she received from her divorce. She made me her world. 
After a little over a year, I ended the relationship due to several incidents that led me to believe she might be crazy or have severe trust issues. First, she went through my password protected phone when I left it at home, scrutinizing all my conversations with my male friends. Second, while I was at work, she hacked into my email and scoured it, finally bringing her to notes from my cell phone synced with my email. She found a note in which I had written several months prior to myself about the positives and negatives of her. It was kind of a mental mapping exercise I did. She forwarded it to herself and then accused me of sending it to her and said she was out shopping, buying me something at the time, so she couldn't have sent it. And thirdly, she used a fake texting app to text me, pretending to be a fake girl I supposedly met up with and had drinks with when I was blacked out drunk. I dismissed all the advances from the fake girl, saying I had a girlfriend and I'm not interested in meeting up again, stating that I do not remember meeting her, and that if I did meet her on, I was sorry. After watching the number, over the next month, I continued to receive messages from the fake girl from four different fake numbers. The messages ran the gamut from calling me a cheater and a liar, the trick that she was going to tell my girlfriend, to saying that my girlfriend is probably cheating on me. Naturally, I became suspicious of all this, and I resorted to some sneaky techniques to uncover the truth. I looked through her phone where I found pictures of notes on my computer listing my passwords to various accounts, as well as private texting apps on her phone. She denied everything until the bitter end, until I finally offered up proof. So the question is, is any of this forgivable? Is that level of craziness slash lack of trust able to be fixed? Am I just as bad as her in resorting to the things I did to uncover the truth? Yeah, no. None of this is forgivable. There's nothing here worth salvaging. You should run. And you shouldn't feel bad about snooping to uncover her snooping or snooping to uncover her deceit. You were a little deceptive. She was massively deceptive. Two wrongs don't make a right. But as I've said previously on several dozen shows, snooping can sometimes be the right thing to do, but we only find out it was the right thing to do in retrospect. It's retroactively permissible or exonerated depending on what you Find out. You should never snoop, but that you snoop and find out your husband has a secret secret family. You snoop and find out that your wife is fucking your dad. Whatever it is that's sort of unforgivable and a betrayal that's so scalding and so nuts that you have to get out of the relationship. You find out your husband is having unprotected sex with tons of men and unprotected sex with you too and putting you at risk. Yeah, you can look at that little bit of snooping and say, I needed to know that and run. You needed to know that this person – was so manipulative and deceitful and kind of nuts so that you could get out of this relationship with a clear conscience. You were being gaslit and you ungaslit yourself. So yeah, you have nothing to feel terrible about. You were put into a position, you were forced into a position where you had to do what you did to protect yourself. Now it's done. Run. Hey, Dan, this is a response to episode 504 and the guy who was moving out of his evangelical parents' house but doesn't want to come out to them. I completely agree with what you said, that when he comes out, he needs to make his parents fear his rejection instead of fearing theirs. This was hard for me to grasp, too, but it became easier once I took the key step and moved out. Once I moved out and started taking care of myself, I got an apartment, a job, friends who were out and supportive. 
I wasn't dependent on my parents anymore for room and board. I could eventually come out to them on my own terms from a place of strength as a moderately successful adult instead of a kid at home. So yes, for all the reasons you mentioned and more, he should come out to his parents. But I would suggest establishing your roots a little first in your new life. And odds are the task will become more palatable over time. I have a good relationship with my parents now, but I was better able to stand my ground when I had my own ground to stand on. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 504, the gay man that's terrified of coming out to his parents. I had to give the exact same advice that you gave me a few years ago when I called for advice to come out to my very conservative Catholic dad. You told me to tell him that I love you too much to continue to lie to you. I told my dad that, and I confessed that I am a gay man. And he was very pissed at first, but he called me after a couple of days and said, you are my son and I love you no matter what. I can't say that this is how this guy's parents will react, but I can say that completely coming out of the closet was the absolute best decision that I have ever made in my life. I suggested this guy does the same and I wish him the absolute best. Hey Dan, I got a comment for the closeted man in episode 504. Uh, I think that yes, it's possible that his parents will never come around, but if they do eventually come around, they are going to go back to their evangelical church and tell everyone they know that their son is gay and they accept him fully. And that's what we need more of in the society is more people coming out, more parents coming around and loving them and showing people that it's okay to be out and live as who you are. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the what? It's the number. That's what, 206-302-2064. Give us a call there to leave a question or comment for a future show. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Maura Weigel on Twitter at Maura Weigel. It's W-E-I-G-E-L. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for now.